Well, I hope today you're going to be filled with incredible hope and joy as we look at how to make God the king of our life. We're going to discover in 1 Samuel that fear is often an opportunity God gives us to seek out a, a new and a better king. Now, sometimes we set ourselves up as king when we try and control things that are beyond our entire control. I mean, think about the cultural mood we're in right now. We're being told by our culture that you and I need to make sure that our entire family is never put in any danger at all, ever. Are you qualified for that job? Or more than that, we need to make sure that you and I can track an invisible, untrackable virus of which there are currently no tests. Okay, that's my job? Yes, that's your job now. And if you don't do it, people you love are going to die. It's no wonder we all feel panic, right? We're not qualified for the job description of controlling the universe. And it fills us with even more fear and anxiety. I can't do that. I'm not up to that. We get ulcers. We can't sleep, right? It's what happens when a king in your life topples over. It might be my ability to control circumstances. I thought I could, but in this environment, it comes crashing down. Now, sometimes it's our ability to control. Sometimes it's a career. Sometimes it's a child. We feel like, hey, I've, I've trained my child well. I've tried to be very wise. And then your child doesn't make the wisest of choices. And you're like, oh, who am I if I'm not a great parent? There's a lot of ways in which when you get fearful, when your gods fall down, it's a chance to set yourself up and search for a greater and better king. In fact, that's what happens here in 1 Samuel. But instead of seeking out God as king, they actually seek out a kind of king that God told them not to have. Remember Samuel forewarned them? Samuel's talking here in 1 Samuel chapter 12. And he says, Now when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, fearful circumstances, you said to me, we've got to seek out a new king. No, but a king will reign over us. But the Lord God was your king. God wanted those circumstances for you to seek out him to be your king, not find a replacement king. Now this king that creates so much fear in them, Nahash, he's, uh, he's going to make them an offer they can't refuse. And it's going to terrify them even more. And then King Saul's going to show up and chop up a steak into like 12 pieces and somehow this chopped up steak is going to inspire them and fill them with courage and hope to trust God to take on their greatest fear, even going back a couple dozen years. What? That's what we're going to explore together. We're going to look at a serpent king, Nahash, and the tall king, King Saul, and what God wants to teach us about how fear can drive us to find a better king. Now, as it does that, we're going to find that God is the type of king that can bring hope and courage into you. But first you have to discover that you and I make lousy kings of the universe. I've got a cousin by the name of Jonathan who's a morning show host for a Christian station in Illinois. And he recently had the opportunity to interview Governor um, Rod Blojevich, Blago as he's known in Illinois. Now a few background you need to know about Illinois. Uh, I grew up in Illinois. 
And in our state, we kind of jokingly say that if you're going to be our governor, you've got to be willing to do time because half of the governors have ended up indicted for significant things up in Chicago. Well, Rod was the same. Blago ended up in, in prison and specifically for trying to sell uh, Barack Obama's Senate seat. He still says he's innocent, but I got to hear him interviewed by my cousin just a few weeks ago. And it was a fascinating article. He described that while he's been in prison, filled with fear, freedom taken away, he began to deeply seek out the Bible in a way he never has before. And for years, he said, I I sought the Bible and I let God challenge me. I learned how to forgive my enemies because I still say I'm innocent, but I need to forgive my political opponents. The other thing he said is that if he didn't have his, his daily time in the Bible, to reset himself, he wasn't prepared, prepared spiritually for the day and to handle the circumstances he was in. Now the amazing thing, he said, what I discovered during my time in prison, because Trump just pardoned him about a month and a half ago, is that I was really egotistical and proud and arrogant. It was in this incarcerated time of fear that he discovered that he had made himself king of the universe, the king of his own world, the king of his career, the king of his marriage. He'd been proud and arrogant. And God had humbled him. He said, now that I'm out, he said, it's been amazing, about 30, 45 days I've been out relating to my children who are now six years older. And I'm trying to figure out how to communicate to them that God's a bigger deal in my life, that these spiritual disciplines are vital now to how I live my life. But it was these fearful circumstances that forced him to face the fact that he's not the king of the universe and that he needed to find a better king and that God would be his king rather than Rod being his own king. I hope God can do the same thing in our passage today. It begins by looking at the serpent king. The serpent king comes from the name of the king we're going to see today. What do I mean by that? Well, the passage begins by introducing us to Nahash. Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. Now, this phrase, to make a covenant, literally means to cut a covenant. Because when you made a covenant, you would cut into a piece of meat divide that piece of meat, and you and the other person would walk between it. So they're literally saying, we are terrified by you. We know you could kill us all. So surrender, please. Let's make or cut a covenant together. Now, why do I call him the serpent king? Let me show you. His name here, Nahash, in Hebrew, is the exact same name as serpent used in Genesis chapter 3. So if you're reading in Genesis 3, actually on our app, you'll see at the left-hand corner, top left, click down to Bible Gateway or click over to Blue Letter Bible, you can do a Strong's Word search. If you click on the word serpent, it'll highlight and pull up the word Nahash. This is the serpent king. See, any king that's not God is eventually going to deceive you, challenge you, and take something away from you, right? And that's exactly what the serpent king's going to do. They are terrified. They don't want to die. Hey, cut a covenant with us. And here's how he's going to reply. Now, the Ammonites are down in this section. 
Here's the Sea of Galilee. I'm sorry, here's the Jordan River and the, the Dead Sea. So the Ammonites are in this section and they have made their way up to Jabesh Gilead and they're terrified because most of Israel's on this side of the Jordan River. Now, as they're coming, you need to realize that this serpent king has an incredible firepower behind him. In fact, this is one of the archaeological finds. There's 20 of these. They're called watchtowers. Imagine 20 different watchtowers, these massive military stances where Nahash and his Ammonites would, would stand and attack people in the region. Now notice on the picture here, you'll see this is a full-grown adult right here, and that's how massive this is. So this is why they're so terrified by the Ammonites. Look at this little hill they live on. This is Jabesh Gilead. So they're living up on the top little hill. They're surrounded by the Ammonites and they're like, get us out of here. Now, in those days, the, the houses were real small. So imagine these houses sitting on top of that little hill. You're sitting in a house. You can't get away. There's no place to escape. Your worst fears are surrounding you. You've said, well, let's just surrender and make a deal. Just make us alive. And here's what Serpent King offers you. So Nahash, the Ammonite, answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach upon all Israel. Now remember, he's playing with this idea of the word cut. So it's very, very sarcastic. You want me to cut a covenant with you? I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. How about I cut out your right eye? All right? That's what he's saying here. That's why he's the serpent king. There are many things in your life that will make a covenant with you, but they'll take your right eye along the way. Now, if you're one of the elders and you just got offered this deal, how do you respond? The elders say, my right eye, huh? Could we hold off for seven days and think about it? What? Yeah, just give us seven days. Let's think about it for seven days and maybe during those seven days we'll wander around Israel and we'll see if there is someone who's able to save us. But if we can't find someone else to save us, we will come out to you. See how the fear of one king drove them to seek out a new king that could save them. God wants to use our circumstances to do the same. When you face a greater fear, you need a greater king. And when you face your greatest fear, you're going to need the greatest king. There's actually been some archaeological finds that show actual areas. This is in 2300 BC where they had a mask where somebody literally plucked out the eye, the right eye. This was a common practice of putting yourself under the allegiance of another king. God wants to be your greater king the greatest king that you seek out when you're facing your greatest fear. In fact, this goes back to, uh, to what Jesus did. Jesus would often expose his disciples to fear so that they would find him to be the greater king. In the book of Mark, it actually tells a story of an incredible storm going on and Jesus is asleep on the boat. And the disciples are like terrified. Look at the waves. Look at the lightning. Look at the clouds. They wake up Jesus. We're going to die. We are terrified. You've got to help us. 
Jesus gets up. He looks at the waves. He says, peace, be still. And the waves are stilled. And then the disciples, having seen this, look what it says. Then they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who then can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, did you catch that? They're scared of their circumstances. Jesus says, you have very little faith. Peace be still. And then they're filled with exceedingly more fear about who Jesus is. They replaced one fear with a greater fear. But think of the first fear as a fight or flight kind of I'm panicked fear. The second as the awe of God kind of fear. So you don't have to be fearful of some circumstances if you have trust or reverence or awe or fear in a greater king. And that's what God's showing here. So Jesus and God continually expose us to fear so that we will trust him and seek out freedom. I read an article in the Atlantic called Surviving Anxiety. It was a story of a Scott Stossel. He described his challenges with anxiety over the last 30, 40 years of his life. He said, you just don't know what it's like to be overwhelmed all the time with anxiety. He said, when I was at my wedding, I sweat through my entire clothes. I had to lean on my bride just to make it through the entire ceremony. Years later, my, my wife had a child and I passed out clunk, from fear. He said, it's been job interviews, it's been dates, my whole life I've been overwhelmed. He said, but one of the weirdest things I struggle with is 60% of my mental energy is spent worrying about something that I haven't had happen in three decades. Three decades? Yeah. He said, I am terrified of losing control through vomiting. You know, feeling when you get sick, you just feel like I'm out of control. 60% of his waking hours is spent scared that he would lose control and vomit even though it hasn't happened in three decades. So he went to a psychologist who said, you're so catastrophizing this circumstance that the only way to cure you of this is what's called exposure therapy. So what is that? He says, we need to make you vomit. No, 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 no. She said, yes. We just had a female executive from up in New York. She came in for a week. And she had the same condition. After a week, she was cured. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to bring a nurse in, give you a little syrup of Epitech. We're going to let you throw up just a little bit. We're going to talk about it. Then a little bit more, talk about it. We're going to do that over several days. We're going to expose you to the thing you fear the most. Show you it's not nearly as bad as you think. It's not as overwhelming as you made it out to be. And by doing that, we're going to conquer the fear as you begin to not eliminate it, but expose yourself to it. And sure enough, just like that executive, he went through the process of exposure and he found himself finding that the things he terrified, the things that scared him the most, those greater fears led him to find a greater king. Don't you want freedom in your life? Don't you want the kind of freedom that comes from not having the things you've set up in your life topple over? 
the type of kings in your life that have taken out your right eye out of worry or anxiety because you've tried to control the universe? Why is God exposing those at Jabesh Gilead to fear? So they will seek him out as their greater king. And as your pastor, I want the same thing for you. As your friend, I want you to find the freedom and confidence of not making a deal with the devil, the serpent king. All right, take my right eye, but at least I'm alive. What does it look like to live in hope and confidence when God is your king? So we move from the serpent king to the tall king. Now, why do I call him the tall king? Now, I don't know if you remember from a few weeks ago, but Drew described that when they picked out Saul as king, he was taller than everybody else. And Saul's going to do a lot of things wrong. But this chapter, he actually does a lot of things right. He tells us a little bit about the character of God. Because he's the type of king who doesn't take out your right eye. He's the type of king who's angry at injustice, but willing to offer mercy and peace and unification during a challenging time. Let me show you what happens in the passage. So the the messengers, they're scared to death, surrounded by the king, uh, the serpent king came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. We're about to get our eyes chopped off. And the people lifted up their voices and wept. And there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. Saul said, what troubles the people? Why do they weep? And they told them the words of those from Jabesh Gilead. And then the spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news. And his anger was greatly aroused. Now this is not a bad thing. He's angry at the injustice. He's angry that family members at a location that had a long history in the tribe of Benjamin are being unjustly attacked and threatened. So we get to see here a picture of the God of the Bible who's angry at injustice and wants to do something about it. So he took a yoke, Saul did, of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel and by the hands of the messengers saying, whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, it shall be done to them like this stick. Why in the world would chopping up some steaks into 12 pieces and sending them to all the different tribes be a motivator? (laughs) Why would this help people trust God as their king? Well, this illustration he's gonna use is gonna be so powerful because it's gonna connect the whole nation into a time in the past to face their greatest fear. The stakes? Yeah. The stakes are gonna help them face their greatest fear and one of the the worst fears they've ever faced. And saying there was a time in our history when terrible things happened and we didn't trust God. Let's not be like those from previous generations who didn't act and trust God to be their king when faced with a great fear. Here's what it says in the book of Judges. To understand these, this, this oxen cut into 12 pieces, you need to understand what happened in Judges chapter 19. Starting in verse 16, but mostly I'm going to be here in verses 26 to 30. Here's what happens. There's an old man. He's in Gibeah, the place of the Benjamites. 
And one day he comes to his front door, and as he opens the door, there's a concubine or a prostitute there. The master arose, and he sees this concubine falling at the door by his threshold. He picks her up, throws her on the donkey, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, takes her home. Once he gets her home, verse 28 here, 29, he entered the house, then he took a knife, he laid hold of the concubine, he divided her into 12 pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And so it was that all who said that day, no such deed has ever been done in Israel, even going back to the time of Egypt. So consider this. It's what happens. Confer with one another and speak up. It was like their Hannibal Lecter moment. Clarice from the past. And Saul's tying into this to saying, if we don't stand up against evil and what's happening to our, our fellow Benjamites, just like our worst fear in the past, we're all going to not just lose our eyes, we're going to get chopped up into pieces, just like that concubine. And this so motivates the people. They're like, that's right. This is our moment in time that we're going to trust God to be our king. And that's what they do. They trust this tall king inspired by God. He's just divided up the oxen and now he gives this incredible speech. Look what happens here. He comes to the people and says, the fear of the Lord fell on the people. Just like I said with Jesus in the boat, right? The fear of God replaces the fear of your circumstances. And they came out with one consent. We're going to do this. We're going to trust God. When he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000. And the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who came, we've got to trust God to be our king. We've got to stand up against injustice during this time. So remember, Jabesh Gilead is here. The Ammonites are coming from here to attack them. They've got it surrounded. The Israelites, all these pieces, parts have been sent over the last six days. Everyone is gathered together at Bezek and they're traveling now from this location over to rescue the people, praying for a deliverer, praying for rescue. They got to travel in the morning and they got to get through this incredibly challenging terrain with all those people to rescue the people in time but they are highly motivated. God is with us just like he's been in the past. God is our king. Let's trust him now. Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. So messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh and they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we'll come out to you that you may do to us whatever seems good to you. Now think about that for a moment. They're now so confident. Remember seven days ago, go ahead, make a covenant, cut out our eye. God, please help us. Please send us a deliverer. And now Saul and the men are trusting God to be their king. They come and they say, we're on our way. By tomorrow when the day is hot, God will deliver you through us. And they have hope. So much so they go out to the serpent king like, hey, uh, we'll see you tomorrow. You do whatever you want to us tomorrow because they're so confident God is with them. All right, so it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning and they killed these Ammonite terrorists who were taking on the people until the heat of the day. And it happened 
that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. God, we are going to trust you the same way Gideon did, the same way Joshua did. We're going to trust you to be our king and to deliver us just like the stories we've heard from the past. And God does. He delivers them from the Ammonites. No more negotiating a cut, a covenant, take out my right eye, my left eye. No more of that. No more deals with the devil. Let's instead make God our king. So now, what's the lesson here? Because after they leave this section of victory, they head back to Gibeah. And now there's a huge fight going on, a disagreement. See, a lot of people showed up to the battle, but a whole bunch of people didn't. What do I mean? A whole bunch of people like, I don't trust Saul, the new king. I don't think he can win the battle. I'm not going to go with. So now the people with him have won, and they're feeling pretty confident. And they come back to the people who didn't trust Saul. And they're like, hey, didn't we say whoever didn't come was going to get chopped up like the old steak? Time to chop him up like the old steak. And Saul now has a moment. Is he going to make himself the focus? You didn't choose me as king, Israelites? Or is he going to make God, the ultimate king, the focus of this passage? Look what he does. So they've just traveled from Jabesh Gilead. They've gone down here to Ramah and Gibeah. And here all the people of the nation who, who went with him and didn't with him are about to have a, a, a conversation. Then the people said to Sam, Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring those men who didn't trust, who didn't go, that we may put them to death. And Saul said, No. Not a man shall be put to death today. The Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Now isn't that amazing? Instead of making his kingdom the focus, who is for me, who is against me? He said today is a day that all of us celebrate the real king who provide the real victory is where we put our trust. And though the other people didn't come with him, they deserved punishment, he gave them mercy. Those who wanted to divide the nation during this time, the king decided to unify them. That's why when you choose a king, we reject the serpent king and we embrace the king who's angry at injustice, but also willing to offer grace and mercy and unification. That's why Saul here is a great picture of Jesus. He goes on to say, if you have not chosen God to be your king, you need to repent and you need to make restitution. See, Samuel said to the people, come, let us go down to Gilgal. Let's renew the kingdom here. All the people went down to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And they made sacrifices, more steak, of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. They rejoice. They're all together with God as king. So here's what you and I need to do. Face your greatest fear with a greater king. God is the greatest king. And if you have not put him in the greatest place, your fears are calling out for you and I to find a better king. And if you have not made God your king during these times, God asks us to make restitution if we haven't and to repent. It's exactly what Samuel does. He gives this big speech here. Samuel says, indeed, I've heeded your voice and all that you said to me. You made a king over you. That's what you wanted. I gave it to you. And now here's your king walking before you. 
and I am old and gray-haired. But as I think back over my life, he says, I want to make sure I don't need to make restitution to anyone here. Here I am. Witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? And whom have I cheated? If I have, I will restore it to you. And they said, you have not cheated or taken anything. He's saying, if I did anything wrong. See, when you make something else your God, reputation, people's acceptance, you end up cheating other things in your life. And if you cheated God because you've given sacrifices of your time, energy to other gods, come back to God and ask for his forgiveness. And be willing to make restitution for ways in which you have been out of alignment with God. So that's restitution. The second thing though is repentance. It's turning away from one king and turning back to another. Look what he says. Samuel says to the people, it is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron when we called out to him, who brought the fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now therefore, stand still and let me reason with you. Isn't that what it feels like right now during this quarantine? There's a lot of standing still time. Would you let this standing still time be a time that God could reason with you to see if you need to repent from making a deal with a serpent king and to choose him as your greater king. Stand still, Samuel says. Let me reason with you and see if you need to repent. When you saw Nahash, king of the Ammonites, come against you, you said to me, no, but a king will reign over us. But the Lord God was your king. Now, therefore, here's what I want you to do. Here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you've desired. Samuel said to the people, do not fear. You have done all these wicked things, but our God is gracious and merciful. So serve the Lord with all your heart. To which you might say, well, how do I do it? Chad, I I want to serve God. I want to make him my king. I want to know how to make restitution with other people I've made mistakes. I want to know how to repent. How do I do it? Well, we don't just want to talk about this stuff. As a church, we want to help show you how to do it and put some tools in your hands to figure out how to realign ourselves to God as king. In fact, it's during this next few weeks together, we're going to offer a new resource. Some videos are going to come out two or three times a week with a resource called The Pathway to Prayer. It's going to help you go through the book of Psalms. And if you've never been through the book of Psalms, one of the most incredible things about Psalms is it gives voice to fear and anxiety and uncertainty, things you may be wrestling with inside. But then the Psalms also turn us toward God and they turn us toward hope and they turn us toward resources beyond ourselves. So if you want to know, like, how do I really do this thing, Chad? Horizon is making this resource available. It's a PDF you can download from our website or you can call the office and maybe they'll send you a paper copy because sometimes it's nice just to write some notes. It'll take you through a psalm. It'll ask you some questions, give you a place to journal. And you may want to do this just on your own. Maybe it's a solo journey. Now maybe you only have like five minutes a week. We're going to be producing videos that come out two or three times a week. You can go on our website, sign up for our newsletter. 
and those will be sent directly to you in your inbox two or three times a week. Just watch that video, sort of steer you toward God. If you want to go a little bit deeper, download the PDF or get a copy of the, hard, the, the softback copy here and begin to dig deeper into, God, what is going on in my heart right now? And what am I wrestling with right now? And what do you want to do in my life right now? Or you might want to do it as a group. Like if you contact the church office, they'll get you in contact with John or me or Drew or Tammy and say, I'd like to be in a Zoom group. We've got many, many people are going to go through this pathway together in a group, dialing in through Zoom, sharing thoughts with one another, sharing promises with another, another just encouraging each other. That's what, that's what it means to be a church, even if we have to do it through a digital portal. So again, choose the greater king when you face your greater fear but instead of making that kind of a, a generic, abstract idea, join us as a church as we go through this pathway together as a community to realign all of us toward God. I mean, imagine when we're back in this room together, and it's not just our bodies are here, but our souls are here, united as one, because we approach the throne room of heaven together. We learn how to pray deeper and pray better. Because, you know, prayer is just talking to God. In fact, as we close our service today, would you give me an opportunity to pray for you? That God would just fill you with the courage of knowing that whatever serpent kings are surrounding you, the king of kings is on your side and he can deliver where no one else can. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kingdom. We ask that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Rise up each one of us to the challenge of these days, like you did with the people of Judea in Israel, that we would lean into you as king and we would learn how to talk to you as our savior. And for people here who don't know you as king, Father, I ask that they would reach out even now and just say, Father, forgive me, I repent of other kings. I receive your death on the cross for me and I set you on the throne room of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, communion is a powerful reminder of who God is, but it's also a reminder that you and I can be together even during a time when we're apart. But the book of Revelations also reminds us that communion is more than just being forgiven. It says in Revelation 1.6, to him who loved us and washed us of our sins in his own blood and has made us not just forgiven, he's made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Did you know that when God looks at you and I, he sees us as kings and priests? That's why he washed us, so that we could have a royal identity. The same idea is picked up in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. When you realize that you're royal, he says, you, O man of God, flee the things that are bad, pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold of eternal life, which he will manifest in his own time. For he who is blessed and only the king of kings and lord of lords. Have you ever heard that phrase before? The king of kings? It's a phrase that means a king that serves on top of additional kings a monarchy who serves along with different monarchs that are in charge of different regions. See, God's a king of kings because he wants to lead with us. 
Think of uh, King Arthur. You know, he didn't have a square table, he had a round table because he wanted his fellow men to know they served together. They were serving as a team. Jesus, through communion, says that we are part of the team of kings, that he is the king of kings. And this king took his body and he gave it for you and I. Where most kings sacrifice their people for the sake of themselves, this king sacrifices himself for the sake of his people. Let's partake together. God, thank you for your body given for us, not just to forgive us, but to make us royalty adopted by you. Amen. The same king, on the night he was betrayed, gave forth his own blood by saying the cup of redemption that his disciples had drank since the time of Passover was a reminder of what he would do for them. So let's partake and remember that his blood washes us and makes us royal in his name. Father, we worship you together. We worship in our hearts that though the whole world seems uncertain, God, you are the anchor. You are the secure one. You are the place we put our trust and our hope. In Jesus' name, amen.